0: You know, I was thinking about this passage because it's a passage in Acts 14 where Paul was willingly facing death, and I'm thinking, okay, now, how does that really intersect with us as Christians in 21st century America? Well, I think first of all, we could say that we as a church should wholeheartedly support those who go to antagonistic territories, right, for the sake of the gospel, I mean, we've seen people from our church do that. We've had missionaries come through here not too long ago, a couple a couple young children. They lived in Marshfield, and they said, hey, we want to go to the Middle East in a, in a territory that was not friendly to the gospel, and we want to go live there and plant churches and share Christ. And I mean, I look at that, and I see, you know, here's a young couple that's upwardly mobile, and they're putting aside, you know, their 401k, getting a promotion, living in a nice house, driving a newer car, living in the preferred neighborhood with the preferred schools and church. And they say, we're willing to pack up and start a new life elsewhere for the sake of the gospel. That's cool to see, but it's even cooler for us to be a part of that and to send them, support them, and, and that's what we can do. So we're glad to support those who make those kind of sacrifices. There's another application. Perhaps God is speaking to some of us to go, to go to these kind of places. He calls, and some of us can say yes to that, right? I mean, we had, uh, we had a couple here that was part of our church in the, uh, in the late 80s, and they've been missionaries their whole life. They were ministering in the U.S., and just decided recently, uh, we're going we're gonna to pack up, we feel called to Turkey. They're in their late 50s, early 60s. They have two kids in the United States, and they're saying, we're going to move to Turkey for the sake of the gospel. Uh, that is cool to see. So sometimes God calls us to go, and, and we can say yes to that. And then I think we just have to ask ourselves the question, what difference does the gospel make for us right here in our lives? Most of us stay. Most of us have jobs, families right here. How does the gospel make a difference where we live? I mean, how does the gospel influence my commitments, my relationships now? So, seen through the light of Acts 14, I think, it's not so far removed. I think we can see, you know what? I can give my all. and You know, it may not be in Lystra, but I can still give my all here. And whatever God asks me to do, I'm willing to do. And so, it's not so far removed from us. Our text tells a story that's rather heroic, of Paul and Barnabas they go back to cities in which they had visited before and they were once rejected but they go back. It's what Paul and Barnabas do in these cities that I think is particularly informative for us and and influential in how we operate as a 21st century church. The last time we were in Acts we read of Paul and Barnabas being in Iconium preaching the gospel, uh, but there was great opposition, particularly to some Jewish leaders that that ran them out of town. And then they, they find themselves in Lystra, and these group of Jewish leaders followed them, essentially, showed up again, creating opposition. We pick up the story in Acts 14, verse 19. Let's all stand as we take a look at this. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italian. From there, they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. This is not the first time that Paul has met violent opposition and it won't be the last. We read in Acts 13, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. Three chapters later, we read, the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And there were other occasions in which similar violent actions were done against the apostles, and particularly Paul. Now, one might think that you'd be prone to quit after having that kind of a reaction to your ministry of preaching the gospel. But what is it that causes somebody like the Apostle Paul to continue to face this opposition and to go into these territories where he knows that people are going to be hostile? Well, we have the benefit of some perspective as Paul kind of looks back upon his life And in the last book that he wrote in the New Testament, before his death, we read this in 2 Timothy. "'Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began.' and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do, but I'm not ashamed, for I know who I am believed and am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. He was not ashamed because he felt this eternal indebtedness for the grace of God that had been poured out upon his life. Here's a man who was a murderer of Christians, and now God has expressed his grace, forgiven him of his sin. How can I thank him enough? And so he felt called to be an apostle and a teacher to do all that he could to give the gospel. The opposite of serving Christ and serving for the sake of the gospel is entitlement. Thinking that we deserve fortune. Thinking that we deserve comfort, perhaps because of our heritage, or perhaps because of some other merit. The service That Paul is able to offer can only come about because he died to self. He realized that his life was not his own. Paul said yes to the stewardship of God upon his life. He was a steward before God of his body, of his very life. Yes to not calling his life his own. Yes, to walking into danger by obeying his call. Now, not all walk into danger, but all of us can obey the call. All of us can use our gifts. All of us can serve. All of us can take a towel and a basin and say yes to whatever it is that God is calling us to do. We are instruments of service for our heavenly king. So a servant of Christ can be courageous by simply saying yes at each step of the way. Notice that these Jews persuaded the crowd. These are antagonizers that traveled. Now remember, you know, we're talking first century travel, a hundred miles to come and just be a thorn if, in Paul's side if not being able to kill him. The crowd was so incensed by the Jews that a mob rises up to stone Paul, not by a judicial sentence, but by a a public display of mob rule, mob fury. And they throw stones at him, knock him unconscious, and drag him out of the city. Now, some think that Paul actually died in this incident. I think that Luke would have been more specific about that Instead, he says, these people assumed that he died. They supposed that he died, but I don't think he actually did. Instead, we read, they targeted Paul, not Barnabas, which perhaps it's because that Paul was the vocal one. They drag him out of the city. Now, let's just backtrack here a little bit, okay? Because earlier in this chapter, those in Lister, remember, were calling Paul and Barnabas a god okay, calling him a god, now they stone him. It's kind of like with Jesus. Today, Hosanna, we cry. Tomorrow, crucify him. Popularity turns like the wind. And we can never put our security in another person's praise. I'm thankful for my friends. I'm thankful for the long-standing friendships that Janet and I have been able to enjoy, and I'm sure that you enjoy as well. But experience teaches us that those who declare their undying loyalty may be the same ones who lead a charge against you. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city and on that day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. How can we not be inspired by the sheer courage of Paul? And when he came to his senses, he gets up, he's outside the city, he gets up, and he heads right back into the city. Why? Well, it was to continue the job that God had given them. I like what John Wesley once said. Always look a mob in the face. Not everybody can do that, but Paul certainly did. I like what he would later write in 2 Corinthians. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Going right back to the city where they tried to kill you. They did not wilt, but they came to continue their mission to strengthen the saints, to edify the body, to make sure a a firm foundation was built for these young believers. Think of how the word of God, the work of God, would prosper if God's servants refused to quit. Notice the believers were gathered around Paul. Now, maybe they showed up to bury their beloved leader. Even so, they weren't afraid to be identified with one who was the target of such ill will. But he was not dead. And he opens his eyes, and he sees a group of people around, a supportive group. Just like there will be people who can oppose us, we can also be surprised by those who support us. Praise God for that, right? Courage can be fortified by a supportive community. But we have to realize that our strength ultimately comes from our relationship, our intimacy, our our communication, our support from the bread of life. And not from counting noses of our friends. Not from counting our allies. And I'm reminded just in the same breath, in 2 Timothy 4.16, where Paul wrote, at my first defense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. I mean, whether we are deserted or we are surprised and wake up to a, a group of supportive friends, we know that it is the rock of our salvation that we need to lean upon. It's that friend who sticks Closer than a brother, and his name is Jesus. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So Paul and Barnabas are essentially backtracking to the cities that they had visited on the first leg of that first missionary journey. And now they're going back to minister to these saints. Despite the knowledge that they're returning to some hostile areas. They went to make disciples, to preach the gospel. It's the essence of the Great Commission. Not just to give information, but to build up the believers. He was not... Counting the notches on his gospel gun, he was equipping and building up the saints to take on the work of the ministry. If there was ever a verse that epitomized pastoral ministry, it's verses 21 and 22. Strengthening the souls, encouraging them to continue in the faith. A servant of Christ participates in their giftedness to build others up in the body of Christ. Now, just imagine for a second being a new convert to Christ through the preaching of Paul, and then you see how your community is reacting, and they stone him, they try to kill him. What would be going through your mind about standing up for Christ— You might think twice. You might say, you know what? You know, maybe I'll just put this Christianity thing on the back burner for a couple years. I'll let everything die down, okay? And then maybe we can be more open when the political climate changes. You know, I'll just become a a secret agent Christian for a while. Maybe they had people that still wanted to keep all the old acquaintances that were bringing them down. And I'm not suggesting we ought to do that, just drop our friends. I'm not saying that. But, but sometimes the peer group pressure we wilt under, maybe that was on their mind. Maybe they couldn't leave the faith of their families. Others don't know if they have what it's take to, to, to stand against the, the culture. They don't know if they can swim upstream. So Paul takes it upon himself to build up the saints, to encourage them in their walk with Christ, to stand firm. He would write in Colossians, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. It's not just get them saved and leave them. It's to build them up that they can mature. That's why we take seriously taking the word of God verse by verse in this church and not just giving a a gospel message every Sunday, the same message, but that we learn the scriptures to be built up, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. As God grants salvation, it is our job to pour into others so that their faith grows deep and strong. And how's this done? Paul would write in 2 Timothy, It's done by teaching the word of God that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We build others up so that others don't give out. But it doesn't stop there. We're also to remind the saints that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What? Did we read that right? I thought it was supposed to be, we enter the kingdom of God victorious, riding high, all that God has given to us in material possessions because he's blessed us so much. It's our best life now. Look at my new Cadillac. Not so fast. The phrase kingdom of God, first of all, it's not a It's not a geographical location. It's the rule of God. And that rule continues throughout eternity. Those who are followers of Christ are in the kingdom of God and are to live according to the dictates of the king, and our king is Jesus. We could say it this way. The gospel ensures entering the kingdom. Our obedience and perseverance ensures our rewards in the kingdom. What Paul is telling the saints is not that tribulations are a requirement to enter the kingdom, as if, you know, we have to kind of gin that up to earn entrance. Rather, tribulations are expected for everyone who enters the kingdom. That's just the nature of the beast. That's just what's going to happen. A genuine believer in Christ, in some way, somehow, is going to go through tribulation. And not that we have to, you know... Take on some kind of martyr complex, but it just happens. Being a follower of Christ will cost us something. For those who endure and continue to be faithful, there will be rewards, not only on earth, but after. So we have to take up our cross, be willing to accept suffering, and follow Him. No cross, no crown. A servant of Christ willingly suffers for great benefit. We read this, the words of Jesus in Matthew, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. What? You mean the enemies that I've had? I, I need to say that I'm Blessed? That God is using that? That's exactly right. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. How about the next time you recall that episode in your head? That tape replays, and don't we all have those episodes? I do. I do. And I can, I can spin real quick some kind of victim mentality, start feeling sorry for myself, or... I can go in another direction and say, wait a minute. This is an opportunity that God is using to strengthen me, to help me. Rejoice and be glad. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In Romans it says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And in Hebrews, he considered the reproach of Christ, greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. The Lord delights in rewarding those who refuse to be taken in by the opinion of men, who refuse to be taken in by the riches, and make that their primary goal. Nothing wrong with the riches. Nothing wrong with God has blessed you as such. But that's not the meaning of life. That's not what we're going after. And if God asks, I can set that aside to serve him. So how can we take on a kingdom mentality and change the way we view hardships? How can that happen? I've kind of already alluded to it, but I think we're all prone, just because we're human beings, we all have a flesh, we're all prone to retell our story to others and cast ourselves as either a victim or a hero. It just comes natural to us, right? I mean, as heroes, we tell the stories of our past in such a way that we make ourselves the star of the narrative to solicit some kind of praise. Or as a victim, we play the role of some kind of wounded warrior, and then we deserve sympathy. Either way, we put ourselves in the center of the narrative, Hey, I've had plenty of practice at this, and so have you, all right? We all do it. But when Christ is king, listen, he becomes the central character. All I am, all that I do, all that I will be is through him. It's for him, through his person, through his power. So in trials, a kingdom mentality refuses to take the role of a victim. Instead, we are a servant of the king, A servant of Jesus with eternal value, with a kingdom purpose. Let me ask you this. Is an heir of God, one rewarded for suffering, one given greater wealth than all the earth can offer, is that person a victim? I don't think so. So we can rejoice when tribulations come our way. Let's explore a little bit more about what this means. First of all, a victim sees those who oppose them as just enemies. A servant of Christ sees them also as an instrument of God. You replay that tape. You're thinking of that person, right? Who's hurt you, who's come against you. They're an instrument of God, right? We can choose to take a victim mentality, or we can thank God for those who oppose us because they can be used by God to mature us, to give us an opportunity for reward. So next time they come against you, just say, thank you for that opportunity, brother. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. There's an inside work going on through opposition, through hardship. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs with God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Thank God that he is using others in your life to be an instrument that you may mature and that you may receive great reward. So thank you, God, for the opposition. Thank you for that person it changes the way we replay that tape in our head. A victim sees themselves as powerless. A servant of Christ is secure and given power to operate in love. Now, I don't know about you, but often when you replay those things in your mind and you think, now, if I see that person again, by golly, I'm gonna give them the what for because they shouldn't have said what they did. They shouldn't have done what they did. And I'm gonna set the record straight. Anybody else? Replay those things in your head, okay? There's three people around us. The rest of you I know are lying about it, all right? How about thinking of a scenario now instead of how you're going to get back? Thinking of a scenario of how you can be kind, of how you can express love because God has given you that kind of spirit. He's given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and what? Love. And a sound mind. I can think rightly, I can do rightly, I can still love. Now that doesn't mean I'm going to let such people that continue to be that way in my inner circle, okay? That just means you can still have boundaries. But what it does mean is that I'm not going to be rude, that given the opportunity, I can still be kind. Lastly, a victim sees persecution as a hindrance. A servant of Christ sees persecution as a gateway. How many times have we struggled with Using the opposition that we've had in the past or some kind of problem we had in the past as an excuse for not doing what we should do today. Maybe an excuse for our own inadequacies. I think I've told this story before. You know, we hired an organization to come and do a leadership you know, evaluation for us as a church. And some of you might remember that. We you know, did a, a, a church survey, but they did interviews with all the uh, Uh, the staff and elders and all. And uh, I'll just say this, that uh, things were dysfunctional. This was of uh, two or three years ago. One of the things that that the gentleman who runs the company, one of the last things he said to me as he walked out the door, he said, okay, now, Kevin, you can quit making excuses. And I remember thinking, I got a little PO'd. I'm like, hey, dude, what are you doing telling me this? I mean, where do you get off telling me that? But then the more I thought about it, the more I realized he is exactly right, because that's what I've been doing. I've been making excuses for not leading the way that I should have been leading. And instead of being pulled back to, you know, this situation or that person, it's like, all right, what is God calling us to do today? How do I need to lead today? This is what I need to do. And quit making friggin' excuses. I'm not suggesting that we're not impacted by those that have hurt us. We are. And the the opposition is real. I I get that. But I'm not going to make excuses for my own failures or my own unwillingness to lead or serve the way I should. And I realize that those opportunities, those people are gateways for something that God wants to, From me, that now this is an opportunity for me to recognize my own inadequacies and to depend upon Christ to do something in spite of not being in the ideal situation. By the way, are we ever in the ideal situation? Your family's not ideal, your job is not ideal, and newsflash, your church is not ideal. Life is not ideal. So we have to we have to function in the midst of this dysfunction but still be responsible and still lead and still serve and somehow hang on for dear life to the anchor of our soul to get fed, do the best we can with others, but we don't give up. We persevere, we endure, we go on. And all of these situations that we think are roadblocks are gateways. I can choose not to be a victim, I realized my own inadequacies so that I could see his power to work in any circumstance. Let us choose to operate as a servant of Christ to be fit for his use, a conduit of his love. Let's be a person who's living on purpose, a kingdom purpose in any circumstance, looking for a great reward. Let's pray.